and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home went right up to my room slept for a day and then I woke up the next morning I spray painted my wall no quit me I remember you know there is no quit me and I won't you know I won't give up thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have you are listening to intentional performers with brian levinson where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self as we talk with them The hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us today as we chat with intentional performers, people that are intentionally living their life or going about their craft in a way that's purposeful, that's meaningful, and that is intentional. So we interview all kinds of different people, athletes, musicians, actors, business people. And today we are going to chat with Tolo Olobumi. Tolu may not be somebody who is on your radar, but what she stands for certainly is. So Tolu was not born in the United States, but she certainly considers herself to be an American and has worked hard to try to achieve the American dream. She has an unlikely journey uh, from an unemployed, undocumented chemical engineer to a respected immigrants' right activist and an internationally recognized social entrepreneur. At her very core, Tolu is a mixture of an engineer and an activist, and what a beautiful mixture that is. She's really innovative, she's curious, and she's super creative in how she thinks about the world. She is also the founder and CEO of Lions Right, which is a social venture that builds and manages initiatives committed to giving voice and value to the voiceless. So she is just an intentional thinker and an intentional doer. In 2015, she was recognized by the World Economic Forum as one of 15 women changing the world, and she is a founding board member of the United We Dream Network and co-founder of Immigrant Heritage Month. Tolu serves on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Migration and co-chairs Mobile Minds, which is an innovative initiative advancing cross-border remote working as a 21st century alternative to physical migration. So Tolu has put her heart, her soul into helping immigrants. Uh, if you've followed the news at all over the past six months, you have certainly learned about Dreamers and DACA. And Tolu is certainly an activist for 
those people. She's been a featured speaker at the White House, the World Bank, Barnard College, at Columbia University, New York University, and the U.S. Congress. So she is an incredible speaker, and she molds and meshes her journey, her story, which she's going to share with us today, and the knowledge and the wisdom that she has learned through the years as an activist. Tolu is just a warm spirit, a warm soul. She's incredibly bright, but she's also incredibly engaging. And I know that our country is better off to have people like Tolu on our side. So when you like this conversation, and I know you will, please share it. It's a great opportunity to put a face, or in this case, a voice, to something that is very serious and is is obviously a big deal right now in our society. So we go from lighthearted conversation to in-depth, dark conversation. We talk about philosophy. We talk about the way that she sees the world. And I know you're going to love this conversation. When you do, share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever it is that you're social. And I know Tolu will be grateful for that. And of course, if you enjoy this conversation, if you could subscribe to our podcast, we'd be forever grateful. And of course, if you can uh, pass it along to some friends and family members, it really does mean a lot to us. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you and share with you Tolu Olobumi. Tolu, uh, appreciate you coming into the office and chatting with us, uh, sharing your story. I know it's an inspirational one. When I learned about you, I think your story is inspirational, but I think one of the things that makes you special and unique is your way with words. Uh, so I actually wanted to start there. Where did you start to develop your way with words or your interest in words? Yeah. Thank you. First, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here um, and super excited to, to chat with you. Uh, so words, interesting, because I, I'm a scientist as, at heart, right? I, I wanted to be an engineer since I was eight, and that was my passion. Uh, you know, I didn't settle on chemical engineering, which is what I ultimately studied uh, until my sophomore year in college, and I took chemistry, and it was hard. <laughs> but I loved it and decided I want more of that crazy, difficult um whatever it was in, in my life. Um, and so that's how I really settled on chemical engineering. Through that, I went to, a, I was blessed to go to a liberal arts university, uh, which encourages everything, a well-rounded education. And I really credit that for so much of the, so many of the skills that I have now that have helped me in this transition from being an engineer to being an advocate and to being um, an, an activist and a public speaker, uh, because, it's given me the background and the tools to be able to use words effectively. Uh, I was a reader when I was when I was younger. Um, I wrote poetry when I was younger. Um, when did that start, poetry? So, oh, when did that start? So I, I edited my, I was an editor for my high school's uh, poetry magazine. Um, but I think I started writing probably around middle school or so, um, where something would trigger an emotion and I would, the only way to express that would be to, to write it down. And even, even now, so I'm, I'm religious and I, and I pray and I find that there are always a thousand things going on in my head. So when I pray, I try to write, I write my prayers down so I can focus. And so for me, writing has always been a, a form of self-expression, not necessarily for other people, but for me to even understand everything that's jumbled up in my brain. Can you remember when you started to 
write down prayers? That just doesn't, that's not something I hear every day. Yeah. Um, so I, I started journaling when I was in high school and then that transitioned and it's fairly recent that turning the journaling into, into writing down my prayers. Um, and that really started probably about 10, 15 years ago. Um, I guess that's not so recent. <laughs> in my head, it was like, it's really recent. And I'm like 10, 15 years. Oh, that's a long time. Um, when so you say yeah. journaling, are you carrying a journal around? Are you intentionally doing it in the morning and the evening? When are you, when are you writing? When the spirit moves me. <laughs> so anytime, 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 anytime. I don't carry because my journal is so personal and so private. I, I and I am super paranoid when it comes to like losing things. Um, I don't carry it around with me. I take it to church with me sometimes, but um, but I don't like carry it around with me every day. But I do always have a notebook with me because uh, you never know when inspiration strikes or when someone says something you want to remember. I also always have my phone and take notes on that. Um, and sometimes you say something to someone that even enlightens you um, and you want to keep that because you're like, wow, I just said that. And let me understand what I just said, because that that is really incredible and 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 encourage in a way that I didn't even know I could encourage myself. Um, so I, I write all, all of those things down. And and most of the time, inspiration kind of hits me in the middle of the night. <laughs> I think when everything is quiet, when you're not, it's not just the quiet, because you can, you can be quiet during the day, but then you're also not expecting interruptions. You're not, not only are you not being ex interrupted, but you're also not expecting it, which I think psychologically leaves you in a space to be more open and receptive. And so at 2, 3 a.m., my phone is not ringing. Um, you know, there is no email that's coming through. It's just me and my thoughts. And I, I tend to write things down then. So when you wake up in the middle of the night, you have some inspiration, you'll write? I keep a piece of paper and a pen next to my next to my bed always. That's awesome. And let's go back a little bit. So you mentioned religion, uh, passed down from from your family, or where did that start for you? So religion, yes, definitely. I grew up in a Christian home um, with you know, both parents. I grew up in Nigeria. Um, grew up in the Anglican Church, uh, but for me the relationship that I have now with my faith is very different from what I grew up with. It is not something that was passed down. It is something that has evolved and I have discovered on my own. So I have a very rich, very personal relationship with God and it is uniquely my own. And I relate to, to God in, in, in my way, in a way that makes sense to me, um, in a sense to, in a, in a way that makes sense to me and anchors me as I need to be. And I find that the best way to, or the way to get the best out of uh, religion and your faith is to have that relationship that with with whomever it is or whatever it is that you believe in that is not anchored to other people, but anchored in your direct relationship. When did you sort of come to that wisdom? Was that something that you, it's not something you grew up with? No, it's something that came with a lot of heartache. Um, you know, my immigration status really upended my life in, in so many ways. It isolated me in a lot of ways. Um, from from it isolated me and cut me off from the life that I thought I 
always wanted and worked really hard for. It isolated me from my friends uh, because I didn't feel comfortable sharing my secret with them. And in some instances, I didn't want to feel judged um, about that. And so there was some shame associated with it that I had to work through. And it isolated me from my family because I'm the only undocumented one in my family. Um, and so they don't really understand, right? It's like they're empathetic and they care and they love me, but no one really gets it when you've been a planner all your life and you've dedicated yourself to pursuing your dreams, knowing that you know, if I did, knowing and always believing that if you work as hard as, as you know how to, if you follow the rules, if you do all that you're asked to do, um, that you will be rewarded in the end with not everything you want, but at least not stripped of everything that you've ever wanted. Um, that put me in a very, in a very difficult and isolating place. And I could have just, gone into my own head and I did at times go into my own head and retreat from the world but it was there was a decision to be made am I going to hide under my bed forever or am I going to live so it's either you're going to die or you're going to live pick one um you can't there's no middle ground um and choosing to live means living the life you've been giving and trying to make the best of it however you can so let's back up a few steps. Walk me through what life was like for you as a kid um, and just paint that picture. And then I want to come back to what you're talking about, which is this notion of sort of not being alone, but feeling alone is what it sounded like. But walk me through and give us, paint that picture for us because a lot of people don't know your story. Yeah. Um, so share it with those strangers so they can get a sense of uh, where you were brought up and, and what you're sort of alluding to now. Yeah. So I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm the last of five kids. My parents' favorites, of course. <laughs> this tells you about um, my relationship with my with my siblings. No, no, no. We're we're all we're all super close. Um, the youngest is always the favorite. I, I feel like it's just written in stone, and so that's why I feel like with each child that pops out, they're sitting there like, "Okay, mom, you're done." because I'm the favorite. Like you were trying before and now you've come up with me and just lock it up. We're My good. younger brother, we literally call the Prince of the North from Game <laughs> of Thrones. Like he literally is referred to as the Prince of the North. I do happen to love the Prince from the North, exactly. I, I will say. so. <laughs> A lot of people love him, especially my mom. It's like, we would all come home and, you know, my mom wouldn't make us any chicken soup or anything. And then my younger brother, Michael, would come home and he would get steak and mashed <laughs> potatoes and like, you know, this royal treatment. And the fridge was always full when Michael came home. Oh, come on. I know your mother and she <sighs> is giving and kind to everybody. She loves she us knows. equally. I've she, actually she <laughs> I've actually become the favorite because I'm the only one that stayed local. But this isn't about me. This is about your story. So you're the... You're the fifth child. I am. And you guys are living in Africa. Yeah. So I was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, my father uh, started off. Uh, well, I guess that's not starting off. Um, so my father, my family lived in Belgium for several years. And I actually have siblings, two siblings that were born born there. And, um, and two siblings whose first 
language is is French. Don't ask them to speak French now because they <laughs> they've forgotten most of it. Um, but my father worked for the Royal Customs Organization um, in in Belgium, and he was stationed there with my mother. Uh, and then they moved back to Nigeria, uh, and I was born. I was born in Lagos. Um, you know, grew up normal. My father worked for Customs Nigeria. He retired as assistant director of customs nigeria um i grew up happy and loved we traveled all the time my father had been to probably every single country there is on the face of this planet um my mother had uh my mother had her business and it took her to europe often and she dragged us along with her when we were lucky uh so i you know i visited friends and family in, in Europe and, and in the U.S. Um, before I moved here. But growing up in Nigeria was, it was, it was good. It was, I was very sheltered. I was extremely sheltered. So the best way to explain this is my, my father is the man who he would go up to him excitedly and say, dad, daddy, really. And it was always daddy. And it's still daddy. <laughs> um, you say, daddy, my friend is having a party and I really, really want to go. And he's like, oh, that's amazing. You know what I think we should do? We should invite them over and have our party here. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, and so you really hardly ever went to any parties. It was always turned around and the parties were always at our house. Uh, you never did any sleepovers and everybody came to our house and had the sleepovers. There. Why was that? He just felt he was very protective and felt he needed his family was everything to him. Uh, and he wanted to be as close to us as all times as possible. And he also traveled a lot for work. And growing up, my father often lived in a different state than us. And when he wasn't in Nigeria, he was um, he was in other countries and in Europe, and Asia, or whatever. So he'd be traveling a lot, and when he got home, he wanted to be home. He wanted to be home. And, and he, he wanted to take care that. of his kids. Uh, yeah. I mean, Especially young Tolu. Well, well, don't <laughs> tell my siblings, but yes. <laughs> so, and it was, you know, it was good. And I went to boarding school when I was 11. Um, and then from, you know, boarding school, which was different. I was, I was used to having things my way at home and boarding school is not as easy. Um, so it gave me a perspective when it comes to, you know, understanding different people. I met a diversity of, of folks there as well. Um, that taught me different things about myself. It helped me mature significantly because when you don't th do the things you're supposed to do, they're not going to coddle you. Like you're just going to get in trouble. And so I got in trouble a little, but I was also a good kid. So yeah, that was growing up in Nigeria. And what about mom? Mom. Mom is amazing. Mom is the hardest worker you'd ever be lucky to meet. Um, she's an, she is an incredible, incredible woman who is self-taught in so many areas um, and who built just a life and a family that you know, from where she came from, she shouldn't have had access to, but she did and she made it happen. She's, you know, a woman of faith and just an incredibly beautiful, beautiful human being. So love mom. And how do you end up in the States? Uh, so my brothers were here. Um, my brothers were here and came, came out to the U.S. for college. My sister went to uh, 
law school in England and my brothers came out to the UK, uh, came out to the US for, for college. My brother went to Howard and played football for them and little Tolu was home by herself and wanted to- Time out real quick. Yeah. Your brother goes to Howard to play football. Where did he start playing football? He played, well, he played football at Howard. He didn't go to Howard to play football. He went to Howard to go to school, which is what my mother would say. Um, but he ended up playing football. Um, so here, yeah. We, he, didn't he didn't play football enough. I mean, like, he he's not playing no, football. No, 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 he did not. He did not. Um, so, no, he, he started playing football here. Um, and he still plays, like, games. He's he's taken his passion. He, he no longer lives in the U.S. He lives in the U.K. now. But he's taken that and plays, like, games every Sunday in the U.K. And I'm just like, okay, just take your football wherever you go. <laughs> and when you're saying football, are we talking about American football? Football. American football. American football. Yes, yes. Not soccer. So he comes to, I just want to, because I'm a sports guy. So he comes to Howard. He didn't play football growing up. No. And he just walks onto the football team? I think so. He he just figures it out? You know, I don't, I'm, so he, so he came when, yeah. Howard is real football. I mean, it's not like, uh, I'm you're I'm way more impressed than I've ever been <laughs> right now. I have no idea. I just know that he played football at Howard. Um now I'm gonna have to go home and like FaceTime him and ask questions and be like, dude, okay, so you are kind of impressive. Yeah, so like How the, the questions are what position did you play? Okay, what position? Okay, what else? Right. And, uh, taking notes right now. Yeah, like how did you figure out how to play that position? I'm assuming he was a good athlete. Yeah. Uh did he play soccer growing up? You're asking me to remember things about other people. Like I know. I- you, yeah, you're like, you, you, had it, you already had your script set on like, this is what I talk about. And my job is basically to try to, try to ask you the different questions. No, 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 no. You know, but what's most interesting is because this is super new to me. I don't talk about my family yeah. publicly often. Um, like I, I share little anecdotes here and there. This is the most I have ever talked about my family. I talk about my dad. Um, some, but I just like, I'm so intensely private. Um, and I know, like, I, I understand the need to share my story. And I started sharing my story because I understood the impact that it had in moving the conversation forward. But I'm super protective of my family and of their stories. And it's like, it's, it's their story. But my brother has an amazing story to tell beyond just like played football without having played before for Howard. Now see, see how I'm like weaving that in. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed uh, with, with him, but he is, I've never met a more positive human being in my life. He walks into a room. I always say he walks into a room, smile first. He is, he, he makes everybody happy. There's there's never a bad situation. He's been through a lot in his life, um, but you would never know it. He's always smiling. He's the only guy whose flight gets canceled at Christmas, is dealing with like airlines for hours on end, losing money on a hotel that he booked in Jersey because of the storms that was happening. And he's like, yeah. I'm getting to hang out in Florida for a little bit longer. It's awesome. It's fun. And he's smiling and joking. And I would be cursing everybody out if it were me. <laughs> is, is that is that more like mom or more like dad? Oh, neither is that positive. Like, yeah. n- he is uniquely him. Mom definitely rolls with it. 
she just, you know, stuff comes up and she's like, okay, plan B, let's go. Um, dad is very, was, he passed away about 10 years ago. Um, very, very much the intellectual, very methodical. Like I'm a lot like my dad. Very, I was, things I, are done. When you said the word, I'm very protective and private, uh, and you were describing dad not letting you guys you know, <laughs> go out to these parties. I was thinking, all right, you know, yeah. that apple doesn't fall far from no, the tree. Yeah, my poor kids, whenever they come, it's going to be like, yeah, you know what your grandpa used to say? Let's have the party at our house. Yeah, um, yeah so definitely I'm, I'm more dad. But I'm learning there's, there's such beauty to be learned from folks that can roll with it and keep a smile on their face even through worse circumstances. I'm learning a lot from her mom and just kind of, pushing and she's such an intense hard worker um I, I she can just outwork anybody including me um so learning stuff from her and then from my brother having been through so much and still like i you can't mope with him around which is very annoying because there are many times where i just want to pout and i want to cry and i want to be sad about my life and he's like yeah that's cute get up and let's go do something about it so he he's he, he, there's a lot to be learned from him. Well, we won't go too deep into into him and, and the rest <laughs> of your siblings, but I'll, I'll go back to you. So uh, you mentioned that you were the only one uh, that was not a citizen mm-hmm. uh, when you came over. Just explain that a little bit, um, how you come up, how you end up here, uh, and just your your story as an American. So I, I came to the U.S. Uh, when I was 14. Um, so ended up in high school here. Um, and... I was, I, high school was good. It was, it wasn't particularly challenging, thank God. Um, so I did well. So the boarding school really was more challenging than, than, were you a public school? Public school, school yeah, yeah. Public school. Montgomery yeah, County? Was, um, PG County. PG County. Yeah, what PG high County. school? Uh, Laurel High. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so that was, you know, did my AP classes and my plan was always just college, college, college. And so that was just the... What was the it focus. like coming here at 14 though? Um, you're not at a boarding school. You're at a, a public school in PG County. Uh, you're 14. I mean, it's a big transition for a 14 year old. Huge. <laughs> yeah. Just talk to me Huge. a little bit. Like how nervous were you? Shy, upset, yeah. angry, whatever emotions you want to... I... So I was excited to come. I visited and I loved my siblings and they were here. And so I. So your family's all here, but you're in boarding school over there? My parents never moved to the U.S. Okay. So my parents lived, um, continued to live in Nigeria, even with my siblings here. Okay. My brother always joked that we were a party of five without the dead parents. Remember that show from yeah. the 90s? Yeah. Um, so it was us, um, without, without our parents. Um, but so I, I, come to visit. I'd love being with them. And other relatives or other relatives are here as well. I have, yes, I have other, other relatives that are here. Um, but you know, so I'd come to visit and I'd always want to stay longer and want to be with my siblings. And so when I moved, I was excited about that. Um, but it's, it's interesting how folks would think that you get away with a ton more living with your siblings than your parents, but no, no, no. They were way stricter than my parents. I didn't get away with anything. I had to do a lot more dishes than I ever had to do like growing up. Um, but at 14, it was, it was complicated. Um, I was happy to be here, but I missed my parents. I missed my life, um, back home. I missed my friends, but I really had to, I was, I was also, I was 
I was also eager to see what life could bring in this like new adventure. Um, and so I did not shy away from embracing it fully. One thing that I will tell you though is, so when I came here and I, I had an English accent and I had like visiting the US, like, and it was always considered, oh my gosh, that's so awesome and that's so cool. Um, but being a high school student, from Nigeria with an English accent did not go over well. You're and, different. And it was, oh my gosh, every word I said was repeated. It was completely unpleasant. Uh, and unluckily for me, uh, the summer I came was the summer that Clueless came out. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. You, you see where this is going, don't you? Whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I learned how to, quote, speak American. Yeah. <laughs> Calif California American. I went all the way from, like, British to Valley Girl. It was fantastic. <laughs> I I went as if, whatever. Um, it was beautiful. Beautiful. Like, that's part of the journey, right? The immigrant story. Like, <laughs> hard work, perseverance, and a fake accent. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that, that created some issues and I had to, I had to adjust. I, I think I've gotten my American accent like down now. I think I'm, I'm pretty good where, where I am. I think I'll stick with this. Um, but it was, it was, it was hard. It was a completely different culture, um, from, from what I was used to. Um, and so learning this new way of life was, was, uh, was challenging at times, exciting at others. But I always looked forward to the future. I'd, I'd known, I'd known what I wanted to do is be an engineer, and I knew that that you know, a college college was in my future. When did you know you wanted to be an engineer? I was eight. What I mean, why? How? What? Where does that come from? So, as overachieving Nigerians, there are only a few professions you're really allowed to aspire to. <laughs> So you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can engineering came later, you can be an engineer. And I think they've added maybe one or two more, but that's really about it. Um, but for me, I just, I was the girl that always tinkered with everything. I asked a ton of questions and I wanted to know how everything worked. I remember oh, it was probably about six or seven when I discovered the credits at the end of a movie. And I was fascinated by them. I'd have dreams that would have credits at the end of them. I don't know what that says about my psychological strength, but you know, we'll just we'll leave that on <laughs> on, on the back end for someone else to deal with. But I, you know, I, I would I would just think about the credits and then I was like, okay, they put the VCR in the the cassette player and and I'm aging myself completely and I don't even remember all the terms anymore but you know the the cassette tape into the the vcr whatever vhs called. thank you i got your back there we go i appreciate the support um and so i thought well it's obviously coming from that so i took out the tape took a piece of paper wrote on it opened up the tape put it in there expecting to see the words in the words on the screen needless to say i broke the VCR and my mother was not pleased. My my father was the one that was always like, ask more questions. That's fantastic. Break something. Great. Figure out how it works. My mother is like, I paid for this with money. Do you have a job? No, you don't. Quit it. <laughs> so you, but but your dad, who you align with yeah. in a lot of ways, did he have that curiosity that that sort of hey fail, uh, figure it out, learn, grow? Is that that comes from him? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So even though he's protective, he's also going to say, hey, you know, mess with the VHS tape and learn how to fix it and learn how to troubleshoot and problem solve and all that stuff. Yeah. So protective from other people in the world and dangers, but not protected from knowledge. Like, mm. That is a very different thing. He was all about, you know, exposing yourself to as much as possible. He had this annoying thing I thought was annoying back then, but I do it now all the time where you would watch a commercial or even a movie or anything and say, so what did you learn? And it used to annoy me endlessly. It's like, it's a movie. Like, come on, I'm not supposed to learn anything. It's clueless. I'm supposed to, right? I'm supposed, <laughs> well, I was learning something, learning how to speak. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I'm just supposed to enjoy it and let it go. But now, like we were talking about this earlier, where it's like watching a show and hearing a word that you don't know and Googling it or like, oh, Queen Victoria did what now? Okay, and Googling that and reading up on it in the middle of the movie, you know, and then on pausing and you keep going. So I just, I've always been, I had that instilled in me from a very, very early age. And I think that curiosity about the world um, was instrumental to helping me not like not just integrate, but thrive in a new, in a new, in, in, in a new environment. Um, and, and beyond that, this idea that I could be whatever I wanted to be and that there is a solution to every problem. When you said not just integrate, but thrive, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? So there is integration is absolutely important. Um, but and I think a lot of, um, I think immigrants are the most incredible people um, that you'd ever meet in your life because it takes such intense courage to live, to leave everything that you've known um, and move to a new place and own that new place as your own and create space for yourself in this place that might already have been overcrowded. Um, but yet you come in and you say, I'm here um, and I want to be a part of you, but I'm also going to be me at the same time. Um, so I think there is a level of integration that just comes naturally um, and comes and there's another level that comes as the societies that we are, the, the, the societies and newcomers are going into um, there, there's one that they foster by being more opening, by being more welcoming. So there, there's a two-way street there. And then there is really thriving. And that takes effort on both sides, from the community that you're in and from the individual that's in that, it, it, that's a newcomer to that community, where you go above and beyond what is possible. And that, I think, is where beauty lies for, for a lot of people. I love that. So... I use it in the, let's just use adversity as a word because anytime you're going to pick up and move, there's adversity that comes with that. And so I always say there's three types of reactions or responses to adversity. There's a victim who will say, why me? There's a survivor who will say, it is what it is. And then there's a thriver that says, watch this. And as you're describing Thriver, that's how I think about it is, all right, watch what I'm going to do. And I'm even getting like a little emotional physically as you're telling the story, because my grandma came over here on a boat. Uh, she was in the Holocaust and she comes over on this boat and there's an American soldier and they're pulling into New York and the Statue of Liberty is there. And the soldier says to my grandma, ma'am, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady again. And my grandma looks to him and says, no, sir, you have no idea how happy I am to see that lady. 
And I literally got chills as I just told that story. But I think it's true. Like my grandma then, you know, at some point had to get rid of the victimhood of what happened to her family and losing siblings and being separated mm-hmm. uh, to, all right, now I'm going to do what I needed to do to survive. Mm-hmm. And then at some point she shifted from survivor to thriver and all right, watch what I'm going to do. Watch the family that I'm going to create and watch this life that I'm going to make for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think we all should aspire to thrive. I think so. And I think it's an evolution, right? Like you start in a place like we're all human. We're all normal. Um, and I have days where under my bed is my favorite possible place to be and not here speaking to, to you and, and sharing sharing my story. Um, but there's an evolution in, like you said, in not staying in that place where you, you, you move forward and you learn lessons. So you can't, you can't really truly move forward if you haven't learned the lessons in the previous situation so when you learn the lesson about what happened to you and you recognize what happened to you you're not hiding away from it you're not saying it didn't happen or it was not as horrible as it was it was horrible it was terrible it should never have happened to you okay how do i take what i've learned to help me move to a better place but also, and more importantly, to support others, because that that is it. Like if you if your pain and your hurt does nothing to improve the lives of those around you, those that you may know and those that you may never know, then was it really worth it? Yeah. And, and to be clear, I think there's a time to be a victim. There's a time to be a survivor. There's a time to be a thriver. Um, and, you know, to your point, uh, this notion of, of service and, and serving other people um, often is linked to gratitude and feeling grateful for whatever opportunity I have. And now I have an obligation or, or that's a strong word, but a desire to help uh, other people and to serve others. Um, but yeah, I think you, when you talk about integration and thriving, that just made me sort of think about her. Yeah. Uh, and I think we all are, for the most part, uh, children of immigrants. Mm. Uh, it just depends how far back you want to go. Um, so it, it's... It resonates with me for sure. I want to kick the ball back to you and find out. So, so you know, you want to be an engineer. You know that the U.S. is a great place for you to get an education to make that happen. Um, you do well academically. Talk about your college experience and what it's like to go off to a, a good university and, and study. So I, interestingly, I, um, I, I had other plans. I I thought that I was going to go to big engineering school, um, or I was going to go to Princeton. Uh, so I is Lehigh to... is Lehigh the school or no? No. Um, so I got into the engineering program at Maryland um, and also Virginia Tech. Um, so those are like you know two big like really good engineering schools, and then Princeton was was the first choice. Um, and it was quite interesting how faith kind of comes into certain situations. So I, I in I guess that was either 11th or 12th grade, 12th grade I don't remember now. Um, I think it was a 12th grade. I being at the in the top, I think 1% or so, 1% or 5% of my class, um, I'd been invited to a, a, this college fair specifically for those in the top 1% of their class. Um, and I went, I went with the express 
mission of talking to the recruiter from Princeton. But before we left, my guidance counselor had said, you know, there is the school Washington and Lee, um, and they, you know, it's a really good school and they give money. Um, and I had, you know, I couldn't afford college at that point. Um, and, it, and, and when she, when she gave me options of, well, you could, you could try, you could n not go to, not go to college or something like that. And I was like, yeah, well, how much does it cost to go to college? If I need to invent something, then that's what we'll do. Like, that's my, that was my mindset of what do we need to do to make this work? Cause obviously not going is not an option for me because I want to be an engineer. I kind of need it. Um, if I wanted to be something else and that's a different conversation. Uh, so, so I went to this uh, college fair and the line for Princeton was out the door and the poor guy there that was talking to them was just like inundated with folks and the Washington Lee recruiter was all by himself. And so I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for the line for Princeton. But then my counselor told me about Washington Lee. He's just sitting there by himself. Sure, I'll go say hello. So I went, I said hello. We ended up chatting for a while and then they recruited me heavily uh, and took me out to Lexington um, to visit, and I fell in love with the school, particularly the view from the Walmart. So I'm a city girl, always been a city girl. I was in the country in beautiful Shenandoah Valley, and there are trees and leaves, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> look at all this green. Um, and then on campus, meeting incredible students, meeting professors that would actually know my name, I would be one of maybe 15, 20 students in their class as opposed to one of, you know, 500. Um, and you would have dinners at your professor's homes. Like that really started to connect with me as I thought I wanted to go to a big school, but then all of a sudden the small school um, was calling me and I got into Washington Lee. Um, I was blessed to, to have it paid for. And it just, it, there was an opportunity to just learn as much as I could and do as much as I could. And, and I settled on chemical engineering my sophomore year. As I mentioned, I took chemistry and, and it just was so incredibly difficult that I, and I, I, I loved it. And I just, I wanted more of that challenge in my life. All right. So where does that, where does the challenge? So <laughs> I've had other people come on this podcast and like talk about, yeah, that was challenging. And so I just wanted to do that. But I know so many people, including myself, who often, when we're challenged specifically in academics, yeah. uh, let's just use math and science, because I think a lot of people are challenged in those areas, yeah. myself included. Um, <laughs> all right, so I'm not going to take any of those classes. Like, yeah. I'm just going to do, you know, liberal arts or whatever. Yeah. Um, why is it that you were like, I loved it? Um, like, I... Like, all right, this is hard. And you sort of hit on this before when you said, I came over here for high school and it was pretty easy and it wasn't really challenging. Um, what is it about challenges that, that you go toward them rather than run away from them? So not all challenges. <laughs> and you, you can just ask my yoga instructor. <laughs> Total joke. Um, well, yoga is a really good example because like, I literally was talking to someone yesterday who said, I love to do Pilates and I'm doing some yoga, but I really don't like yoga. So I don't think I'm going to keep doing it. So like, that is a good example. Like we tend to say, we're not going to keep doing it. Yeah. But I'm assuming you're still doing yoga. If you oh, said I my yoga teacher. Yoga. I love yoga. What I don't like is um, this boot camp that I started going to for, for a minute there. I, I've quit. Um, I will, I keep promising to go back and I will, but that was painful. Um, 
So, yeah. Uh, so let me reframe Away the question from, then. Mm-hmm. What is it about that challenge that drew you? Oh, see, I had an answer to the to the chemistry. Class. Yeah, the chemistry. Oh, the chemistry. Let's go with chemistry. Okay. Forget right, yoga. I, we'll I was move like, on. Why are we talking about my workout routine? <laughs> <laughs> Less entertaining. Um, so the chemistry class. It was be- chemistry. I never really. I never really. I never enjoyed memorization. So biology was not something that I was interested in. I, I've always loved the sciences. Biology was not, you know, so it made sense that I gravi- gravitated towards engineering because it is about stripping things down and figuring how it works, putting it back together, and then, you know, figuring out the world in that way. Um, and chemistry did something similar to me, and where chemistry explained to me what what makes me me as in how am I standing here physically? Like, what are the pieces that came together to form this? And how does this transition to this? And, and that to me was intriguing. Um, I, I think it's part of like me always loving those like whodunit type investigative shows where it's the mystery of it. Um, I think it's the mystery that's unearthed by chemistry and by, um, by physics and engineering that drew me to it and to the challenge. So, so that to me, regardless of whether I was good at, at it or not, that was intriguing to me. I wanted to know more. Like, You're oh curious. Gosh, I'm, I'm very curious. It's like, that was fascinating. Um, and so I, I knew I wasn't good at it. And I am not one of those people that still through chemical engineering. No, 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 no. I, I, it was hard. I worked hard for that degree. Um, but but that was okay because... And did you have a vision of where you were going to take that degree? Did you know what you wanted to do with it? I knew for certain that I was not a stay-in-the-lab kind of person. And so I did I did my lab work. I did... Um, I did my internships and all, and all, but I, I would always, even my professors would always say, oh, wow, you write so well and you speak so well. Like, you know, you're, you're not, you're not the typical engineer. And I'm like, oh, you know. Um, so I kind of knew that I, I was always and still am a people person. Like I love the interaction, the communicating, the teamwork. Um, and so sticking me in a lab by myself would have been a waste of some of my core skills. Um, so the idea was, okay, I'll run my own engineering firm. I'll pay my dues. I'll be in the lab for a few years. And then ultimately I'd run my own engineering firm. So that was a vision. Um, so I was either going to go to business school or go to law school and then run my own engineering firm. Is Was being an entrepreneur or being a CEO or being a leader or working for yourself, were you drawn to that? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, being born to two parents that are strong leaders. My mother is a very, very strong woman and, you know, very opinionated and, and can command a, a room. Um, so having her uh, as, as a role model and then, of course, my father, who did so many incredible things and pioneered so many incredible things for Nigeria and for Africa as a whole, um, I kind of had no choice. <laughs> kind of was in the blood um but yeah it's yeah it's that there there is that element of it um but that so there was a difference where in college before all the struggles and everything that I've learned over um the past few years with um with the work that I've done before that being a leader was getting to be being in charge that was what it meant to me as a teenager 
Now I understand completely that to be a leader, you have to know how to follow. To be a leader, you have to know how to inspire. Being a leader is one of the hardest jobs you could possibly have because it demands so much more of you. Like heavy lies the head that wears the crown. So true. You know, it really is like as the leader, it is not a I'm the star. It is a very a very sober responsibility to the folks that you are leading, to the folks that you are helping achieve a mission, um, achieve a goal. So it's, it's, it's amazing the difference having adversity in your life makes in your thinking and how you see the world. You know, there was a time when the world was pretty black and white to me, and now I see a lot of shades of gray. You know, it makes you more understanding. So take me from then to now. Yeah. Uh, you graduate from there. Walk us through what comes next. So graduated, um, you know, soon soon after, um, realized that I'd lost access to my legal immigration status, um, and I had to I had to figure out what to do. Um, I started. I went to a whole bunch of lawyers. Um, immigration attorneys trying to figure out, okay, how do we fix this? What do we do? How do we make this work? It's like every problem has a solution, right? <laughs> um, and I I was told there are two options, a change in U.S. law or marriage to a U.S. citizen. And I quite literally had one attorney tell me, you're a pretty young thing, find a nice young man and get married. Mm. That hurt. That hurt. That hurt a lot. Um, and that was, it was heartbreaking. It was, I, after that conversation, I cried for a very long time. Um, and then after I did that, I got up and said, okay, that's not for me. That's not, that's not who I was raised to be. That's not what I want to do. Um, understanding, and I feel like there's a difference in understanding your responsibilities to yourself as a person. That could never work for me. Um, because even if I was with someone, I was at that point in my life, you know, back then where I didn't want anyone to come rescue me. And so just like, forget the fact that you really should not do that. Um, just the, just the idea of being saved by someone, um, was not, it wasn't something that was of significant of, of any kind of interest to me. Um, you know, but, but, but evolving from there and realizing that, okay, you know, that doesn't work. What did he say was the other thing again? Changing U.S. law? Okay. I don't know how, but we could try. Um, and I found the guy who helped write the Dream Act. I, frankly stopped him until he agreed to meet with me. Um, you know, this is back before we were even called dreamers. Uh, and they'd never been an undocumented immigrant full-time in DC, um, working with an advocacy organization. It just had never happened. And so I went in, I interviewed and yeah, I was like, I just want to volunteer. Um, obviously I couldn't work for them. I, I, I didn't have the right papers to work for them at that time. Uh, and I said, I will file papers. I have an engineering degree. I can answer phones. I can tell you how the phones work. <laughs> um, and, and he was gracious enough and hired me on the spot. And there was an opportunity 
there to learn as much as I could about policy, politics, and communication. And so there was this new challenge, right? I'd always been a scientist, but I'd been drawn to politics and advocacy because of my own struggles, but also inspired by um, the 2008 presidential elections, um, where I felt a call on my commitment to my own citizenship. You know? where, where were you when Obama was elected? Oh, the day he was elected, I was with I was with my family. I was visiting family um, out of state. Um, the day of his, uh, the day he announced his candidacy, I was in my room, and I watched. And that was when I I watched that speech, and I was like, Oh, wait, you want me to be part of this? Are you serious? Like, you know, I'm undocumented, right? Uh, but I just felt this challenge, this call to don't not to let this break me um, and and to choose to do to choose to do more and if I feel American in, in, in every way I'm American in every way but paperwork it's like if you're American then what is your responsibility to America and the way that translated for me was helping to create an environment that spoke to our highest ideals um, why do you feel American in every way this is my home this is my home I grew up here as an adult I've never lived anywhere else. This is this is it. I came here when I was fourteen. This is I've lived in the U.S. for almost a quarter century. Um, this is home. I don't know what else it would take for this to be home. I have, you know, I've pledged allegiance to the flag more time than I can tell. I went to high school here. I went to college here. I joined a sorority. Like just, I had all of those experiences you would expect, aside from being born um, on this soil. I'm American, and more than that, I've taken it a step further and proved how committed I am to my adopted home country by understanding what my civic duty is um, and doing everything I could to be a participant in our civilization, in, 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 in our democracy. But here you are, you, you graduate from this university, you're on a full scholarship, it sounds like. You have, I'm, I'm assuming your grades are pretty good in college, just based... Am I wrong? <laughs> I I plead the fifth on my grades. Ask my professors. Not well, they're me. probably good. They're probably good enough, right? They're good enough that if you were in a different situation, that you would have had a job yes. coming out of Washington and Lee with you know chemical engineering degree. Yes. That's my guess. Yes. Um, what was it like mentally for you shifting from that to doing the work that that you were doing? It was heartbreaking. It took years. It took years. It took it took years of trying to figure out other ways. It took years of, okay, am I leaving? Where am I going? And when you're undocumented in a certain country, it makes it difficult to go anywhere else except your home country. And in the middle of all of this, I lost my dad. And so going to Nigeria wasn't an option. When um, you say you lost your dad, so your dad passes away. My dad passes away. Um, my parents would visit every, um, every summer since I've been here for about six weeks. Um, and the last time they came, they came together to visit in um, 2006, he was fine. And three weeks later, he passed away. And so you can't go back for the funeral? No. I, I was the only one that, yeah. Okay. Um, so, but now you're working in advocacy work, so I'm going to shift away from that. 
Um, so you're working and you're advocating in some ways for yourself, but but also for a pop part of the population. Um, what have you learned in in throwing yourself into that work about yourself, and what have you learned about people and society and and just sort of generally speaking? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is that people are people, good, bad, or indifferent. We're all people, um, and we try to put each other on pedestals depending on the situation or try to put each put each other in pits depending on the situation and it's just we're just people um working in advocacy i have had the opportunity to meet and work with some of the bravest most inspiring young people you'll ever have the honor of meeting um just committed to a right to dignity a right to a life free from fear um and, and evolving with that and coming into a system that is set to work a certain way, realizing, okay, that fails me in every way and choosing to go into that system and help fix it, not just for you, but for your community and for others around you. Um, I think that's so incredibly impressive and beautiful. Um, I've gotten to know some amazing leaders. Um, Senator Durbin is a man that I respect so, so, so much and has been just a, a leader on this issue for many, many, many years and has been committed not just to, you know, him and his staff and Joe Zogby, who would probably not want me to say his name because it's always in the background, but is, oh my gosh, one of the most incredible people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, his office, they're not only committed to the hundreds of thousands that are affected by the issue, but also committed to the one individual. He knows the stats and he knows the stories and he knows the names and all, all of those things of so many. But he can also remember the one and say, oh, yeah, my friend, it's nice to see you again. You know, like, it's just it's so beautiful. He is as concerned about one person as he is of the of, of, of the collective, which is very unique because um, most people don't don't see things that way. Um, they feel like one is a detriment to the other. Um, so, so I think, yeah, learning that people are people and that we are stronger than we think. And how about yourself? Oh, so I went from being very self-focused and insulated and just, you know, how do I succeed? How do I move forward? What is my dream for myself? Um, and it shifted that completely. And not just to the outside world, but also to my family. Um, it, it forced me to stop and look around and take a minute to get to know my siblings, to get to know my niece and nephews. Like, it's just all, all of those pieces came together because I was forced to take a break. Like, it was forced upon me. And so... It, I've, I've evolved. Um, it's, it's strengthened my faith. I, you know, I, I'm not perfect. I struggle. I struggle a lot because I'm still living, um, a very, a very complicated existence. Um, I, I would say, um, so, so it's, it's, it's hard when you're still in the middle of, of all that is wrong to, to see all that is right, but I try. And I have beautiful people around me that try to help me see all that it's right. 
Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Oh, don't ask me that. I can't. I, I have no idea. Because I, 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 I couldn't have told you 10 years ago that I would be sitting here with you today. It's just, I don't know. Do you have any idea of what you want it to be? Oh, those 10 years from now questions stress me out because I hope that I will be in the U.S. and I will be a U.S. citizen um, and I will be doing amazing things, not just here, but also giving back to Africa and to Nigeria in a very real way and to the broader global community. Um, I definitely want to do a ton of work, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa around poverty and access to education um, and and. And yeah, I, I would love to be doing those things, but concretely. So, so one of the reasons I asked it was I was curious about whether you would want to be an engineer or whether you would want to be an advocate. Funny story. I was speaking at a conference last, last week, Nexus, which is an amazing network of just incredible young people that are doing fabulous things. And so I was speaking there and I was, I had the same question asked of me and I had one of my friends, um, Candace, who was, who heard my answer. And so someone asked me, and I was like, yeah, you know, I would do that. And Candace stops, turns around and goes, yeah, she's lying. <laughs> so she's like, I've never met anyone who is as excited about policy and law and statues. It's like, I didn't even like statues. And I went to law school, like you read it and you get excited. And so, so to many people, perhaps I would not be an engineer. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think there is room there's a recognition that um, the migration issue and climate change intersect. Um, as an engineer, there's much that I can offer um, when it comes to, to climate change and, and the environment and, and, and those, those areas. So there is an intersection there. So perhaps you know, right, there so, might be something. So there. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Oh, for Lord, you. like that one wasn't. Uh, well, I'm going to put you into like a hole. So if we have 100%, uh -huh. What percent of you would you say is engineer and what percent is advocate? Huh. Wow. You know, so here's how I would answer that question. I would say I am always a 100% engineer because my Alan analytical skills, the way I think, the way I see the world, the way I break down a problem, even in advocacy, that is all influenced by my science background, by the way I was taught to think as an engineer. So those skills that I bring to advocacy make me wholly an engineer, but it also makes me, I hope, a good advocate. So I, I am, it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, but if we had a seesaw, and I'm going to push Why it. are you doing this again? <laughs> yeah, because I, I think it was, what, what caught my attention was when you said, I'm an engineer. Yeah. And I, you said that, you, like, I'm thinking in my head, well, like, are you an engineer? Because you, like, <laughs> you, you got sure? a paper that says you're an engineer. Right, right? Is that and, it? and it's an interesting dichotomy because yeah. it's like, you're, you say, I'm an American, um, and you have the paper that says you're an engineer. <laughs> And then, oh, wow. and then the paper of wow. I'm an American. So that was what yeah. I was trying to make sense of. But I think one of the cool things about you is you have this blending of faith and science. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people limit the word faith to religion. Mm. Um, and I think faith doesn't necessarily have to be tied to religion. Mm. Um, and I think also you can 
believe in science and believe in art. You can, you know, believe in both. Uh, I think we sometimes, like you said earlier, not everything's black and white. There's mm -hmm. a whole lot of different colors in there. And so I tend to enjoy blending. Um, you mentioned a word earlier that I had written down as a, I put courage question mark. So I'm curious how you, you mentioned the word courage. And I think you were talking about immigrants have to have great courage. How do you define courage? So courage means something different to each person, right? Um, for me, courage today was coming out here and talking about my family, um, which I just generally don't do. Um, that's courage. For someone else today, courage might be getting out of bed, right? So the, the layers and the levels are within you and your situation and are defined that way. And that really helps you not to judge a person or judge the situation because all they might be doing is sitting and drinking up a cup of tea, but that may have taken all of the courage that they had in them to be able to do that. Um, on a broader sense, courage is you know going beyond what's comfortable, just going that extra mile um, to create a better life for you and for the people around you. That's courage, I think. I love it. Uh, is there a quote or a mantra or a pro proverb or a scripture that guides you? So there's one that guides my work. Um, and my organization, Lions Right, um, is, is uh, essentially named after this quote. It says, until the lion learns to write, all the stories will glorify the hunter. And that to me means that your story has two sides. And until you take the power and you choose to speak your own truth in your own words, someone else will always tell your story. It also means that as advocates, we have to consistently be encouraging the lion to write always because um, we could inadvert inadvertently become the hunter. Um, the other is from the Bible. He who began a good work in me will see it to completion. And I have to hold on to that, right? Because I am not complete. I am a work in progress. I'm a serious work in progress. Just ask my family. Um, but there's a good work and I can recognize that there's a good work that has been started in me somewhere. Um, and I just, when all seems dark, I have to trust that he who began that good work will see it to completion. I am not going to end up halfway done. I'm going to be finished and complete when it's all over. So those are both awesome. Mm -hmm. So hopefully people can write those down um, and, and take them with them. Um, you said this before we turn on the mics, which was, we met at the ADL concert against hate where, where you were honored. And it's at the Kennedy Center. And I don't even know how many people there, but it was a full house. Mm -hmm. And... You said, you know, I often don't take time to really think about what I've done. Um, and that sort of speaks to what you're talking about now is like, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still becoming. Um, what do you do to be? Oh, um, wow. Or are you just constantly becoming? I, I think, I think I'm always becoming. I think I, I don't, and, and that's good and bad, not stopping. Um, but I'm always, there's always something else to be done. Um, 
And I don't think you should ever be done becoming something, but I do think you should take time to recognize what you've done. Um, and I don't do that as well as I should. That's, that's something I'm trying to learn. And I take opportunities now with people that know me to reflect and to think, oh, wow, yeah, I have come a long way in that area. Yeah, 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 I'm a work in progress in these ones, but this is, I've come a long way in, in that area and this. And for me, like back to the exercise thing with yoga, like I see that where it's like you start and it's like, oh, I can't touch my toes. And now it's like, look at that. <laughs> my head is on the ground. <laughs> well, what's cool about yoga is it's the convergence of becoming and being because mm -hmm. they want you to stretch yourself yeah. to push yourself, but they also want you to be with breathing and being in the in present. Moment, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a, athletes love yoga because I think it does blend the becoming and the being. Yeah. So uh, hopefully you'll continue to do that and one day can force me to go and <laughs> work, work my 85-year-old body. Oh, um, come it's pretty, on. It's pretty bad. No, no. You you have to. I So my particular flavor of yoga is vinyasa. So when I went to just the regular yoga, I don't know what the regular one is called, where it's just like clear your mind and breathe. Oh my gosh, it was more stressful to me than anything else. But vinyasa, I love because it's strength. It's, it's, you know, it's the breathing. It's, it's all of that. Um, and you sweat a little. So awesome. Very fun. So I want to give you a platform as we finish up to just promote anything that you want to promote. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the news and, uh, a lot politically right now. And, um, you know, from the outside looking in, it seems like a, a pretty hot moment in our, in our society. Um, but anything that you want to promote, I know you're doing some speaking as well. So if anyone's interested in having Tolu come and speak to their company or if they're organizing a conference and they're listening, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I can connect you with Tolu. Um, or why don't you give us your social media handles and all that good stuff and just let us know where we can find you and, and promote anything that you want to promote. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is incredible. Um, so you can find me on Twitter, uh, Tolu underscore Olubumi. That's way more complicated. So why don't you just go to my website and link to me from there, which is tolu.us, T-O-L-U dot U-S. And you can connect with me um, on, on there directly or connect to my Twitter account, learn more about me as though you don't know everything about me already. Um, but so there are two, two primary issues that I'd love to draw attention to right now. One is, of course, the ongoing um, fight in, in, in Congress right now um, of 800,000 uh, undocumented immigrants and, and more than that, if you count the people that actually didn't qualify for, for DACA that are still DREAMers. And so there is a misconception that all DREAMers are DACA recipients, but that's actually not true. There are folks that were left out um, of, of DACA. Um, 15,000 DACA recipients have already lost their work permits. And losing your work permit means losing your job, losing your driver's license, losing your ability to pay a car note if you have that, losing the ability to put food on the table um, because you can't drive, you can't go to work. It could mean for certain folks losing their place at their universities. It could mean the difference between being able to get to school and not. Um, and ultimately it means being in fear for, for yourself and for your family, being in fear of detention and deportation to a country that you don't, you never really know. The average soccer recipient came to the U.S. and they were six years old um, and are now in their 20s and 30s. So that's, if 
if there's one thing that I want folks to take out of this is to remember my story and to remember that, you know, I'm American and to use that lens and reflect that on 800,000 other people that are just as, just as American as me. And there are incredible people in all communities and there are absolutely amazing people um, in the DACA community. But whether amazing or not, people are people and no one should be treated this way. No one should be given the opportunity to, um, to live their dream and then have that snatched away from them in, in, in the most difficult way. So, um, so if I could draw folks' attention to the DACA conversation, um, whether it's reaching out to your legislator, whether it's sharing stories on social media, whether it's dispelling myths of these, you know, of, of DACA recipients not, not contributing in, in, in some way or not being American in some way or not being deserving like that people are people. Um, so that's one thing I absolutely want to draw people's attention to, to just pay attention to that because these are real lives that are being affected. Um, the other is uh, is what's happening right now in Libya. Um, so there is a thriving modern slave trade in Libya. And a lot of migrants that are making the treacherous journey, particularly from West Africa on their way to Europe, um, some specifically to Italy, are being caught up in horrific situations and are being bought and sold by cattle. Um, this is not okay. This is not okay at any point in our history. It's definitely not okay after we've learned the lessons of our past. Um, so that's something that I want folks to pay attention to. Just be aware of what's happening to other people that are as deserving of life and breath and freedom as we are. So we, I think, covered some lightness, some darkness, um, but I just want to end by saying thank you. Uh, thanks for sharing both sides of that coin <laughs> and uh, sharing your story. And um, courage is a word that I think is attached to you and the way that you're living and uh, the way that you're going about it. And uh, I think your ability to go from lighthearted conversations to deep conversations and to toggle both of those is what life should be all about. And so, um, I appreciate you and thank you. And thanks for being a little uncomfortable with me and, <laughs> and also, uh, sharing, uh, Tolu has a great big smile. She has a presence about her. If you have never seen her in person, um, it's just an ability probably similar to your brother to capture a room and to cultivate a room. So thanks for coming on uh, and looking forward to many more conversations. Thank you. Thank you. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Until the lion learns to write, all the stories will glorify the hunter. And that to me means that your story has two sides. And until you take the power and you choose to speak your own truth in your own words, someone else will always tell your story. It also means that as advocates, we have to consistently be encouraging the lion to write, always, because um, we could inadvert inadvertently become the hunter. Um, the other is from the Bible. He who began a good work in me will see it to completion. 
And I have to hold on to that, right? Because I am not complete. I am a work in progress. I'm a serious work in progress. Just ask my family. Um, but there's a good work and I can recognize that there's a good work that has been started in me somewhere. Um, and I just, when all seems dark, I have to trust that he who began that good work will see it to completion. I am not going to end up halfway done. I'm going to be finished and complete when it's all over.